If you've been paying attention uh, to the events in this nation over the past several years, you've noticed that everything seems to be about race these days. Blacks against Caucasians. Blacks against Hispanics. Hispanics against uh, Caucasians. Caucasians. It all seems to be up in the air. And um, it seems to be a concerted effort to pit every race against the other. It's been exacerbated by highly publicized deaths of a person of one race at the hands of a person of another race. And and the names that come to mind, you've heard in the news, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner. These are just a few of the names of those people. It seems to be that those in the media or the political classes or the racial grievances for dollars activists want to make sure the various racial groups in the United States stay, stay riled up against each other. You know, frankly, it's good for their respective businesses, uh, whether it's politics or the racial industry. Racial strife keeps the money coming in, and somebody once said, follow the money and you'll know what's going on. Racial animus seems to be good business, but Mike, I hear you say, it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Well, here's a shocker for you. No, it hasn't. Race is a recent development. Race as a classification of human beings dates back only a few hundred years. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, it was not a racial thing. It was a people group thing. It was a family tribe thing. It was a nation thing. It was not racial. It might surprise you, but ancient classical Hebrew did not even have the word race in their language. Race did not exist. Race did not exist. There was one race. There was the human race. That is all that there ever was. It did not occur to our forefathers that different shades of people were different. There was only that one race, the human race. Though after... Our study in um, the first three chapters in Genesis, I, be, I prefer to be called, you know, not, not human. I really, I really like what the original word in uh, Hebrew was. I like to be called an earthling, thank you. So uh, instead of any race, just call me an earthling. But what about God telling the Israelites to utterly destroy the inhabitants of Canaan? Surely that was a racial action. Well, no, once again, it was a people group. It had nothing to do with race. It had to do with religion of the Canaanites. It had to do with the, their sacrifice of infants. It had nothing to do with race. It had to do with God trying to keep the Israelites from intermarrying with a group that had practices that God found abominable. The Encyclopedia Britannica, if you want to take them as a source, says that race as a 
categorizing term referring to human beings was first used in the late 1500s. Okay, that's 500 years ago. That's when race was first used. But even then it was just a generalized meaning of type or sort or kind. That's what they were talking about when they were talking about race. It wasn't until the 1700s that the English Empire began sorting and ranking people in their colonies overseas by race to keep track of who was who. That's American Indians came from there. Indian Indians came from there. Asian peoples in the colonies were categorized by race to keep track of who they were. Americans were treated the same way in the United States. And they then started treating foreigners as different. I like this. They considered the Irish different. Okay? This is the English. If you've looked at a world map, Ireland is right there next to them. They called the Irish savages. They were different than them. They considered us different from, uh, in the United States, different from them. The differentiation of peoples by racial different, uh, uh, differences is a recent development by so-called modern and enlightened man. It never existed. It is an evil of our time, not approved of or initiated by God, but an impulse completely of the last 500 years. I bring this up as background for what we are looking at in our uh, series in Acts today. Last week, uh, we saw the Apostle Peter arrive in Caesarea by the appeal of the centurion Cornelius at the direction of the Holy Spirit. And if those who haven't been here through the whole series, it might be odd to have God directing the Apostle Peter to the Roman centurion, the hated Roman centurion. Well, he wasn't hated, but the Romans were hated. And yet we have seen that in the New Testament, seven times different Roman centurions are mentioned. And every time they're mentioned favorably, which is an oddity, except unless you know God's plan and purpose. Verse um, 25 through 27 last week, and I'll just read them. We're not studying this week. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And so today we're looking at verses 28 through 35, but really just the first verses and the last verses because the middle verses are a rehash that we've covered two times on the story of Cornelius. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? 
And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we all here, we all are here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In verse 28b, Peter was addressing Cornelius and the people, both relatives and friends, gathered in his house. And, uh, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, if any of you have ever seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean... I hate to bring up a movie. One of the most famous lines is about the code of the pirates. And the, the, code, the, the line goes, the code is not so much rules as it is guidelines. Okay? It's not rules. It's guidelines. Well, Peter here says that everyone knows how unlawful it is for him to visit the home of a Gentile. But it's really not law. So much as its guidelines. No one is going to actually arrest Peter for entering Cornelius' home. Nor will they for the much greater, much more egregious crime of eating with these Gentiles. The common practice in Judaism is that a Jew should not should really not associate in this manner with someone from another nation. Uh, this is called unlawful, but this just means it's something not allowed or permitted. Okay? Unlawful here does not mean that the temple guard is going to arrest you and take you in. It is something that is not allowed or permitted. In other instances, this term can mean doing something indecent. Okay, when it says unlawful, you're just doing something indecent. I shouldn't say just before indecent, but there you go. Associating with Gentiles made you ceremonially unclean. But Jewish law accommodated Jewish and Gentile business associates getting together. There were exceptions for Jews and Gentiles to bathe together. You would think that that would be strictly off limits. But knowing that bathing facilities in the Middle East could be a little dicey, there were accommodations made for that closeness of Jew and Gentile. As they say, once again, not so much rules as guidelines. After all, scrupulous Jews were not permitted to socialize or to eat with the common Jew. And to, to explain what the scrupulous Jew would be, they would be the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any of the um, 
class of priests in Jerusalem or the scribes or the high priests, they were not to associate with the common Jews. And as we've seen before, it was the common Jews of Israel that flocked to hear Jesus. Some scribes, some Pharisees did. We know about Nicodemus. We know about people like that. But it was the common, and we're calling them common here. Just like in this verse, he says, let's not call anything common, but it's the same word talking about these Jews. And a scrupulous Jew would not associate with the common Jew. The commentator uh, Barrett quotes that uh, the statement in Acts that a Jew may not associate with Gentiles does not mean that such an association was forbidden, but that each such association was cause for defilement. Gentile possessions needed to be purified before they could be used by Jews. Jubilee, the book of Jubilee, which I've never read, it was an apocryphal Jewish book, It was written uh, probably by a group of Pharisees around 135 BC. Some call it a work of fiction. It's called Second Genesis or Little Genesis. It's a retelling of the biblical Genesis uh, Genesis story. We were recently in uh, Genesis talking about where the classes of angels and the names of the angels came from. Turns out it came from the book of uh, of Jubilee. It names angels, it names classes of guardian angels, things like that. So, this is from them. I am not quoting this as scripture, but I am going to say that Jubilees 22.16 says, Keep yourself separate from the nations, and do not eat with them, and do not uh, imitate their rites, nor associate yourself with them. This is where they're getting the injunction from even associating with other nations is from a non-scriptural source. So this would be tradition and not law that, that Peter is here quoting, saying it's unlawful. It's unlawful traditionally and not lawfully. Verse 28b says... And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Verse 28b. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now this is a leap for Peter to make, uh, remembering back to the vision that he had uh, in Joppa. He saw a... Something like a blanket is what it says, lowering down from heaven with clean and unclean animals in it, and a voice calling out to him and saying, saying, kill and eat, or more accurately, sacrifice and eat. Now Peter makes the leap from God making all animals clean to him making all people clean. Uh, verse 15 in uh, Uh, Acts 10 says and the voice came to him a second time what God has made clean do not call common now now he had just had the vision about the clean and the unclean animals but what God has said here is not what food God has made clean do not call unclean 
He simply expanded and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. So Peter tells the assembly, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Verse 29 continues with Peter talking. He says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? Now, Peter caps off his observation that no man is unclean with the statement that therefore he came without objection because that's actually what the translation, correct translation of the, of the vision that he received from God said. He said, do not object to going with these men. And I'm going to assume right here that Peter knew why Cornelius had sent for him but that courtesy and uh, a Jewish formality had him consent to asking this question. Verse 30 through 33 says, and we'll just go through this quickly, and Cornelius said four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, like I say, we've had two versions of this of this vision that Cornelius has had already in the past weeks, but there are two new wrinkles in this verse. The first is his description of the angel. Remember, at first it, it said an angel was standing before him and he was terrified and that's all we got. And here he expands a little bit more. And he says it was a man in bright clothing. And have you ever noticed that God's emissaries are not drawn dressed drably at the announcement of the birth of Christ with the heavenly host in the sky. They were a dazzling white, dazzling in white clothes in the sky. Here he is said to be in bright clothing. Not that it's important, it's just interesting. The other wrinkle is that God, Cornelius recognizes that the gathered, they are all gathered here in the presence of God to hear what God has commanded of Peter. Cornelius was a man under authority. We've seen previously when Jesus dealt with another centurion that he said, I'm a man under authority. I say, go here, you go there. I say, go there, you go there. Cornelius was a man under authority and recognizes the authority of God over not only his life, but that of Peter as well. He can see that Peter is a man under authority himself. And finally, we have verses 34 through 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And keep that in mind. 
You know, uh, there are many quotes that people use for universalism, uh, that everybody is saved. But notice who Peter says shall be saved. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But hold it. Wasn't Israel's God, God's chosen people? We hear that constantly, constantly today, that the Jews are God's chosen people. But of course, what does chosen, what does chosen mean? Does it mean God's beloved people? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the Jews are God's beloved people. It doesn't say the best people God ever made. It does not say that, okay? The people by whom all other people are to be judged? Or does it mean exactly what it says? Out of all the people groups in the world, out of all the tribes of families, out of all the nations Scattered throughout creation, God chose, chose the Israelites for no other reason than that he had chosen them. He chose them. God chose the Israelites not because they were more righteous, because, because I love the Old Testament patriarchs and I love this... I love the Old Testament patriarchs. I love how human they were, and I love how unblinkingly they were portrayed in Scripture. Nowadays, what's the, what's the saying? In a war, the victor writes the history, which means that the ones who are in control of the narrative make themselves look good, right? But The Bible is different. The Bible is completely different. Some of the biggest scoundrels that we know of are in the Bible. Jacob, who was a grasping, not just at birth, but a grasping man out for his own good, it's just amazing. God chose them not because they were more righteous, not because they were more spiritual, not because they were smarter, and I'm not saying that they weren't, okay, but because they were the same as everyone else. They were average. They were the everyman of the nations. Look at what, if you think that they were more spiritual, Look at our Leviticus reading today where God keeps saying, if you don't follow me, if you reject me, this is what I'll do. He didn't say, I know you won't reject me, so I won't do this. But all through that Leviticus, he's saying, if you reject me, then I will do this. God has made the Israelites his chosen people to show that anyone, no, Everyone could gain the kingdom of God if, if, 
If the Jews, who as the history of the Old Testament shows, had every sin, every vice, and every shortcoming, I mean, look at the lineage of Jesus Christ, okay? The lineage of Jesus Christ lists murderers, prostitute, cowards, cheats, child sacrificers, child sacrificers in Solomon's temple, no less. It proved only that God chose those people as his own, by his own criteria, and not how the world would choose. And those standards, important to God, are found here in verse 35. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, and listen to the qualifications, anyone in every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Cornelius, who was of the hated Roman army, has nevertheless been found by God. And as a God-fearer, and as a man who is righteously giving alms to the Jews, this is what God has said. Just, just one more thing is needed for Cornelius to be found acceptable. He needed one more thing. So God initiates through a vision to Cornelius in Caesarea. And then through Peter, another vision in Joppa. To bring the one last thing that Cornelius needed to be acceptable in the family of God. He needed to know his Savior. Jesus Christ. Bringing the Gentiles into salvation was not some spur-of-the-moment idea on God's part, okay? He didn't just wake up one day. Well, God doesn't really wake up, does he? He didn't just wake up one day and say, ah, let's bring bring the Gentiles into my family. It was God's plan before the foundation of the world. In Genesis 12, 1-3, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who honor, dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 2.2 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 49.6 says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We're still in Isaiah here. 
Isaiah 61 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. It doesn't stop there. In Psalms it says, Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 117 says, Praise the Lord, all nations extol him, all peoples. God decreed all that would happen from ancient times. The only thing that changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that the Old Testament told of what God was going to do. And the New Testament tells of how it was accomplished. Matthew 28 has Jesus in it saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. We saw earlier in Acts, uh, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do you need to do? You needed to be baptized and in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is what Peter has gone to Caesarea to accomplish in the lives of Cornelius and all those with him who would believe. Galatians 3, this is the Apostle Paul saying, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And yes, that old oldie but goodie. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. This was God's plan from the very beginning that all those from every tribe, from every nation that calls upon the name of God, that reverences and worships Him, will be made righteous. They will be adopted sons and daughters of God and enjoy Him for all eternity. That's God's plan. Not everybody will be saved. I understand that. Not everybody will bow their knee. I know of those who I do not think ever will, though God can work miracles in their lives. But everyone, there is no difference in people. We are all the same, and it's not we're all the same under the skin. There is so very little differentiation between the races of people in their DNA down to their very core that we are all the same. Let's close in prayer.